Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series featuring David Frum's opinion, analysis, and insights exclusively for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great analysis, news, and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The next voice you'll hear is Sean Spear in conversation with David Frum. Enjoy. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined by David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, From Dialogues. David, as listeners and viewers know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's episode, we're discussing last week's U.S. Supreme Court decision on abortion rights and its political fallout, including around the world. David, thanks for joining me, as always. Thank you. Let's start with a personal reflection. You've been involved in debates about the U.S. judiciary for a long time. Did you ever think that we'd see Roe versus Wade be overturned? And what was your reaction when you learned of the decision? Look, I, I think we've been heading toward this day for a, a long time. I mean, I, I come at this from a different place in politics and in law. In, in politics, I've always been a supporter of some kind of regulated abortion right, that abortion should be relatively easy to get in the early part of a pregnancy, and then there needs to be some regulation as the pregnancy advances, and the pregnancy evolves to becoming ever more human-like. And that's not a clear-cut position, but I think it's one that is broadly shared. I think most, most people have some instinct that a one-month pregnancy is a different thing from an eight-month pregnancy and calls for different rules. As a student of the law, I've always thought of Roe v. Wade as an extraordinarily weak decision and one where the court took an action it probably should never have taken back in 1973. And indeed, I blame Roe versus Wade for a lot of the culture war agitation over abortion. The reason other societies have been able to find their way to some kind of equilibrium they could live with was because they didn't treat abortion as so much a matter of an absolute right all one way or all the other. And, and it's been apparent for some time that with a 6-3 as opposed to the traditional 5-4 conservative majority, the court was going to do something like this. So not surprised. And I don't think the story – one more thing. I have an article in The Atlantic about this coming up. I don't think this is in any way the end of the story. I think the overturn of Roe v. Wade is going to lead to political developments that are going to end with confirming and consolidating abortion rights more in law, not less. Well, let's pick up that point. I, it would be great to help Canadian listeners understand the decision's practical consequence. What do you envision in terms of next steps? Will we see an attempt to legislate a national standard? Or is one of the consequences that we'll see a growing political energy focused on state-level politics where states will be responsible for effectively establishing a legislative framework for access to abortion and abortion services in their respective jurisdictions? So at the state level, abortion has till now been a free kick 
for conservatives. That it was a way to show that you are more conservative than your neighbor, but without any real political risk. So they passed these very extreme state-level statutes more or less relying on the courts to make sure that they never had to pay a political price. Because when you look at the polls, a majority of Americans are in favor of some kind of abortion right. A pretty strong majority of Americans are in favor of some kind of abortion right. What now happens is there is no national legal framework anymore. It is now going to be up to the states. If there is a Republican president after 2024, Republicans may try to pass some kind of national abortion ban. And at that point, what they're going to discover is this isn't a free kick anymore. Actually, what you have done is just converted every single state and local race into a battle over abortion rights. And you're going to find that a lot of the people who went along for the ride with Republican views on abortion because they liked other things the Republicans stood for suddenly now have to balance the Republican view on abortion. And the professional politicians are going to say, how do we get rid of this thing? And my guess is this whole fight is going to have a, a lot in common with the way the fight over alcohol regulation went in the United States between the 1870s and the, and the 1920s, where eventually the people, the more conservative side, the rural side, got its way and was able to impose prohibition, or in this case, overturn Roe versus Wade, and impose that on the, the rest of the country, which happened to be the cultural majority. And when the rest of the country experiences it, they're going to get organized in a way they've never been before and push back. And that, I think, is how we get through this culture war and get to what most, not Canada, but most other developed countries have, which is some kind of moderated, regulated abortion right, permissive in the early phases, more restrictive later. Yeah, let me pick up that precise point. And, and I would encourage viewers and, and listeners to read David's forthcoming article for The Atlantic. I'll just ask you about the short and long-term political implications. Uh, in the short term, will this strengthen the Democrats in the lead up to the midterms? And over the long term, how much risk is there that Republicans, as you say, overreach and actually turn this victory into a defeat for their cause? I think it will have some impact on the midterms. I don't think it, there's time yet for it really to bite. And I think the unhappiness over prices and other problems is so intense that it, it probably won't help. And it will have its main effect not on national politics, but on state and local top so there, so there you'll be in Texas or Florida or some in, in the suburbs, and you've got a Republican candidate who is aligned with voters on economic issues, on school closures, on other kinds of things, and who's, who's always been able to just not like brush away or, um, or even take a free kick and say, yes, I'm for whatever thing that the pro-life faction of our party wants to do. And they're going to now find themselves confronting people who said, well, wait a moment, do I have to file a police report if I have a miscarriage? If I'm pregnant and I want to go out of state, do I face legal risk if anything happens to that pregnancy while I'm out of state? By the way, our state just banned, uh, just drove out of business every in vitro fertilization clinic in the state because it, sometimes the way you handle it, it involves destroying fertilized embryos. So now we have, you know, are, are you people out of your minds? And at, the, at that point, it's going to begin to have a price. And so I, I suspect where the, what we're going to see is a struggle between the conservative ideologues and the professional politicians in the Republican world as the professional politicians wrestle with this not being a free kick anymore. Let me ask just one big picture question, and then I'd like to come to how the, the reaction has been in Canada and elsewhere to the decision. New York Times columnist Ross Douthat described last week's decision as the outgrowth of decades of conservative agitation to revisit the creation of a constitutional right to abortion. Yeah. David, as someone who is part of the conservative movement for some of this period, what does it say about the common perception that conservatives are, quote, losing 
Uh, isn't it a sign that through ideation, institution building, and patience, that setting aside what one thinks of this decision or not, that conservatives are less embattled in the modern culture than they often perceived? Look, Roe Ro versus Wade was vulnerable on many points. And uh, it was vulnerable, I think, especially because so much of the academic legal profession, even people who agreed with this outcome, always were a little baffled by this, this case. Um, where did this right come from? How did the court get the authority to overrule state and local laws in the way that it did? And because the opinion was so incredible, if you read it, it's so unconvincing. So that it, was always, it was always vulnerable in that point. Uh, but conservatives had, as they built on this, and this is, I think, where Roth's argument is about to meet its denouement, is the main reason conservatives were so successful is the other side didn't organize. And this is where I compare this very much to, to what happened with prohibition. So in the 1850s, there's a lot of prohibition agitation. The state of Maine actually passes an, a prohibition law. The most important state by far in the country is New York. And in 1856, the, in the 1850s, uh, New York State Legislature passes a prohibition law in New York State. And the New York State Supreme Court, which in the 1850s is by much more important than the United States Supreme Court, strikes that law down and says prohibition laws are a violation of natural liberty. And that's an example to all the other major state Supreme Courts. And it's everyone gets the message that state Supreme Courts aren't going to allow you to pass a state prohibition law. So what happens is the anti-prohibition people get complacent and the pro-prohibition people get going. And they get, become more and more organized and they begin to win victories, especially in the period after the 1870s. They win victory after victory. And this, the anti-prohibition, they're a little complacent because they think they count on the courts to protect them. And then uh, comes 1919, comes the 18th Amendment, comes national prohibition, and now the anti-prohibition people have to get organized. And they were always more of them. They had more cultural power. And guess what? The prohibition experiment, the conservative experiment lasts for a time and then it gets, gets overturned and the culture war comes to an end. So I wonder if something like that isn't going to happen with these state abortion bans. That I wonder how many people in Texas are really aware of what was waiting for them the moment Roe v. Wade came down. And once they see what their state legislatures have approved, they are not going to like it. They're not going to like it in Houston and Dallas. And it's going to have an impact on state politics. And it's going to have an impact on, I believe, pushing Republicans away from the very unbalanced pro-life politics they've gravitated to at the state level. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m., into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Political commentary about the decision, though, hasn't been limited to the United States. In its aftermath, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called it, quote, horrific, and held an impromptu media veil in which he spoke almost like an American opposition politician. We've also had Canadian journalists demanding that Conservative Party leadership candidates weigh in. What are your thoughts about this instinct in Canadian politics to want to effectively engage in U.S. domestic politics? Yeah. No, I, I, I found the Trudeau statements startling. And, and really and, and dangerous, not just for in a bilateral way, but dangerous for Canada, because one of the things that has defined the Trudeau prime ministership 
is he has been a culture war leader. You know, he had, he's had a series of not tremendously strong mandates. He's never had a very clear idea of what he stands for on the traditional things that Canadian politics have been about, on the constitutional issues, center versus region, economic issues. He's, he's very blurry. What he is is somebody who uses left culture war politics to advantage because he's always worried about the NDP. But the problem is that that makes Canadian politics, the strength of it has been the way it avoided culture war politics. And in the de- a decade ago, you and I were talking about why does Canadian politics in the 2010s seem so much healthier than American politics? It's because Canadians, by and large, let politics do what politics is able to do, um, resolve truly public differences, not engage in these zero-sum cultural conflicts. And Trudeau's stoking of, of those cultural war conflicts, and he's done it from the start, he's done, um, has, been, has been an invitation to bring U.S.-style cultural war politics to Canada. And so no one should be surprised you're now seeing a rise of that on the conservative side. Again, the conservatives are very blurry on a lot of the things they'd want to do on economic issues, on constitutional issues. But we are going to have a Canadian politics of woke versus anti-woke. I don't think that's going to do anybody any good. And Trudeau's played a large, large role in this. And, and uh, I think that's been pretty irresponsible. Never mind. So the next time the U.S. Supreme Court does something, does that mean he – and he doesn't comment. Does that mean he proves of it? And why do Canadians need to know what their can, Canadian prime minister thinks about American internal law? It's hard to imagine anything that is more purely an American internal matter. And it would be really wrong for – I think Canadians would feel it as wrong as Americans. I mean when, when Americans were funding the truck protest, when American politicians like Ron DeSantis and Ted Cruz were opining about how Ottawa should police its streets – People found that evasive, invasive and offensive. So don't return the favor. It strikes me as something of an odd inconsistency in Canadian politics. It would be widely criticized for a conservative politician in Canada to openly impose a democratic administration or democratic politics. But it seems more broadly accepted when liberals are critical of conservatives or Republicans. What do you think explains this yeah. cognitive dissonance? Well, I mean, I'll tell a, a joke I said many, many years ago in uh, in 1994, there was a second invasion scare in Kuwait. Remember, Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait in 1990 and was repelled by the first Gulf War, but he built up his forces again in 1994, and many people thought a second invasion was imminent. I talked at one point to a Canadian who had been there during that time, and he said, yeah, the, the, the few Canadians in the country were all summoned to the Canadian embassy in Kuwait, and they were all given pagers. And they were told, if there is an invasion, come to the em- we'll page you, come to the embassy compound, and there you will be met by the helicopter and taken to the aircraft carrier. Canadians don't have helicopters in the region, and they certainly don't have aircraft carriers. Who's helicopter and who's aircraft carrier? And the answer was, of course, the American helicopter and the American aircraft carrier. They were going to rescue the Canadians, too. And it was an example of something that I explained to American friends often. There are two things you do in the United States that really alienate and offend Canadians. And one of them is forgetting that Canada is a distinct and sovereign country with its own system. And the other is that remembering that Canada is a distinct and sovereign country with its own system. Canadians want to play by the rule where when they want to be domestic players, they feel free to be domestic players. And when they don't want to be domestic players, they feel free not to be. And I think you need to be more consistent about this. These are two countries and Canadian prime ministers should not be commenting on U.S. Supreme Court decisions any more than American presidents should comment on Canadian Supreme Court decisions unless it involves a bilateral matter. If this were a trade dispute, fine. Softwood lumber, fine. Uh, Canada affecting environmental, fine. But abortion, that's none of your business. It's not the only U.S. Supreme Court decision that the prime minister and his government weighed in on in, in recent days. The, the government has also cited the Supreme Court decision on gun restrictions 
as an impetus for potential domestic gun control legislation in Canada. I guess just at a high level, David, how do you think this series of decisions may influence Canadian policy and politics? Is there a risk for the prime minister and his government that Canadians start to sort of push back against this tendency to want to Americanize Canadian politics? Look, we're, we're already seeing a, a lot of tendency toward that kind of Americanization of, of Canadian politics. And, and I, just, I just invite everybody to remember what a strength it seemed in the early 2000s, uh, in the early 2010s, when Canadians were spared this and Canadian politics did seem more stable than American politics. Why would you want to go down this route? And to the ex- extent that someone like Prime Minister Trudeau proves that it can work, he invites his opponents also to test whether it can work for them. And pretty soon, politics is not about anything that can deliver. I mean, if, if you have a politics that is about how do you finance, what government services should be provided? How do you finance them? How do you allocate responsibilities between center and regions? All of those things can be compromised. None of those things involve decisions that are so very threatening to people that when they lose, they get alienated. But if, if the question, if politics becomes what is the meaning of life, who is good, who's a victim and who's a perpetrator? Uh, Those have become invitations to cultural conflict that can tear society apart. And watching the Americans do it to themselves, why would anybody in Canada want to volunteer for more of that inside Canada? We're having this conversation in the lead up uh, to Canada Day. I thought uh, it would be fun and, and useful to turn the conversation to our country more broadly. You moved to Washington in the mid 90s, but you've maintained a close connection to Canada. In fact, you, you spent a good part of the year here. How has your time away, David, shaped the way you think of the country today? Well, I, I found it really stimulating in my thinking about go, both countries to, to move back and forth between two countries that are so culturally similar but have such different political institutions. And I think the main thing that I've learned from my binational existence is the Canadians especially are very quick when they see a difference in Canada and the United States to explain it as a Canadian cultural event. That uh, there, there's a, a big bestseller uh, years ago called Fire and Ice by Michael Adams, who just tried to posit that there, there were the polls from, that there were huge cultural divisions. And I don't want to say that that's not at all true, but I always think you need to start by remembering the differences between the way the political systems work, the differences between the federal systems, what it means to have a parliament, what it means to have a, a civil service in the way that Canada does, and that you can funnel similar kinds of impulses through different systems. One other thing that I think has been an important difference is Americans had the experience of the Civil War. Their country went to, through the most extreme national unity test it's possible to have, and it emerged more united and cohesive after. Canadians, mercifully, never had such a shock. So the ultimate strength of the Canadian system has not been tested that way. And so I think Canadians have a wise hesitancy to test the limits of politics. And I think that that's a, that's a been a very helpful uh, impulse in Canadian history. And I think people should be eager to preserve that tradition of just not testing the limits. And I guess maybe just a final question, and it relates to our earlier conversation about this tendency to Americanize our, our debate. I mean, how much of it reflects a kind of underlying insecurity? And, you know, when you look at Canada's success economically, socially, culturally, politically, isn't there an argument that we ought to be more culturally secure and, and more confident about our system and its successes? And, and won't that confidence be increasingly important as we move away from a, a unipolar world and Canada has to navigate a more complicated 
geopolitical environment, you know, in a world in which the U.S. and China are in the midst of, you know, something of a of a, a technological and geopolitical rivalry. Those are all really good points. I, I would uh, identify one other issue here, which is uh, information asymmetry. Canadians know a lot about the United States, and that sometimes crowds out what they know about their country. Remember all those people at the truck protests who kept talking, asking about their Miranda rights, and they're uh, invoking the First Amendment, unaware that neither of those things existed. Canadians have lots of rights in police custody, but they don't have a Miranda right, which is Miranda versus Arizona was the name of that the decision from which your Miranda rights come. They don't, there's no First Amendment to the Canadian, there are amendments, but there's no the First Amendment. So Canadians need to understand their own system better. And as you said, some of it is cultural self-confidence. Some of it is just getting out of the cultural flow where America seems so natural. And I, I think I've, I've complained to you about this before, about how British left-wing advocates in the past year made it a test of ideological purity in the United Kingdom to raise the minimum wage to 15 pounds an hour. Why? Because in the United States, the, min- the left demands a minimum wage of $15 an hour. Fight for 15 And the idea that a pound and a dollar are not the same, well, 15 and 15 are the same. The slogan is the same, so it doesn't matter that the em- economic impact would be very different. I think just people need to focus in politics on what they're going to do in their own country, and that means building up a stock of information about their own country. Well, that's a good way to wrap up our conversation as we approach Canada Day. David, I want to wish the best to you and your family on the forthcoming Canada Day. And thank you on behalf of viewers and listeners for another insightful episode of From Dialogues. I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.